This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, a Business Radio special presentation. A conversation with former chair of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, Janet Yellen. Your host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. Thank you, Janet, for joining us today. Uh, The position of chair of the Federal Reserve has been called by some to be the second most powerful position in the world after the presidency. Uh, You had the security, uh, the financial markets would glom onto every (laughs) word you said. I mean, even the tone that you used was that, you know, is that bullish, is that bearish, everything. Um, There must be a little bit of relief stepping down from that level of scrutiny, but uh, is there a little bit of missing the spotlight also? And what do you plan to do in your, in your future? Well, thanks for that question. Let me say that serving as chair of the Fed and before that in other senior posts was an honor and a privilege. And um, it was a job I loved. Um, I... Um, very much enjoyed it, but as you said, there was a high degree of stress associated with it, and uh, particularly on Wednesday, my successor will be hosting his first press conference following a two-day meeting that starts tomorrow and walking into a press conference, and there is considerable stress associated with being prepared for that, um, knowing that you need to properly communicate the main message that comes out of the FOMC meeting and knowing that markets hang on your every word. So um, this was certainly a day like today would have been a day of uh, a great deal of preparation and stress for me if I were still there. Um, But it's a wonderful job and I think a privilege to serve with a terrific group of people doing work that's tremendously important. What do you think are the toughest problems he and the whole Fed, Federal Reserve, FOMC, will face in the next four years? So I think the current state of the economy is highly favorable. Um, We've come out of a We've been in a period of recovery from a very deep financial crisis, but we've gotten to the point where the unemployment rate is 4.1%. This is about the lowest in 17 years. Um, Other measures of the labor market um, also suggest that the labor market is going strong. I suppose one could point to a few indicators like Uh, prime-age labor force participation or the extent of part-time work that's involuntary that suggests a bit more labor market slack. But on the other hand, you could also look at indicators that suggest the labor market is even tighter than a 4.1% unemployment rate suggests. Wages are rising at a very moderate pace. They've picked up slightly but not seeing any real evidence of overheating in the labor market. So I think the labor market is in a very desirable state. 
Inflation, um, the Fed has articulated a symmetric 2% inflation objective, and inflation has been running under 2%. Um, 1.7% over the last 12 months, abstracting from food and energy, a little lower, one and a half. And the FOMC is projecting that inflation will move up over the next year or two back to 2%, but also has to recognize there have been many years, the last six, seven years, in which inflation has consistently, for various reasons, been running under 2%. And it's important to make sure that inflation does um, move back up to the Fed's 2% objective. And one reason it's important is um, that a low level of inflation tends to foster very low levels of interest rates. And um, if inflation expectations were to slip and fall below 2% because of a failure to achieve that 2% objective, when the next crisis, for whatever reason, or, or a next downturn comes, the Fed will be starting with lower inflation expectations and a lower average level of interest rates, and it will reduce even more than is already the case, the scope to use monetary policy. So what's the Fed's job at this point? It is to foster the attainment of um, both objectives that it has, namely maximum employment and also 2% inflation or its interpretation of price stability. So I would say um, there are two, two risks in doing that on, on both sides. One is the economy is growing at a probably an above-trend pace right now. And um, two, 200, I mean, we had 300,000 jobs last month, and that was unusual. We're running very close to 200,000. That's right. And isn't just the population only providing, what, 70,000, 80,000? How can we bring that down um, to a, way, a rate that's long-term sustainable, even if there's a little bit of slack there? Right. Maybe we have till summer, maybe late summer. What do you think? Well, so maybe a pace of somewhere in 90 to 120,000 jobs a month might be sustainable. Depends exactly what assumptions you make. But 190,000 a month over the last year, um, if it continues at that pace, the unemployment rate will gradually fall. Now, I still would not expect to see some dramatic pickup in inflation. But nevertheless... Um, we might see inflation eventually Is that rise. when the Fed has to pull to get that down to the 90 to 120? Would that be what you think has to be done then under those conditions? Well, I think the Fed should and has been gradually raising rates to try to stabilize the labor market in a way, bring down the pace of job growth to a sustainable level to avoid the economy overheating. If the economy were to overheat and eventually inflation looked to be picking up um, sustainably above 2%, the Fed would be faced with tightening policy uh, perhaps more rapidly than would be ideal, and it would risk a downturn, a, re a recession in the economy, which would be undesirable. So. 
overheating is one risk. But on the other hand, we've had six or seven years in which inflation has been persistently running below 2%. And uh, it is also important for the Fed to achieve its 2% objective. And tightening too, too quickly and failing to achieve that, as I said, that also has risks. So there are risks on both sides. Um, tighten too slowly, the economy may overheat. Um, tighten too quickly, um, perhaps inflation won't move back to 2%. And so these are the two major monetary policy or macroeconomic risks, I think, that the Fed has to balance. But as you say, um, the pace of job growth now has certainly been running um, above what is sustainable in the longer term. And the trajectory has been one the Fed's articulated of gradual increases in the funds rate. I, I would say another challenge the Fed faces pertains to financial stability, which is um, the Fed needs to carefully monitor the financial system to make sure that um, the seeds of a future financial crisis are not um, building. And um, asset prices are probably elevated. I, I don't think there are other obvious signs of financial excess um, or... But you said not too elevated at one point. You said that... <laughs> you said in terms of stock prices, given the low interest rates, you, you didn't think they were at the big worry level on, on asset price. Do you still feel that way? So I don't know what the right, price, right level of asset prices is, and I guess I don't want to opine on it. But um, the, I think in terms of typical price earnings ratios, um, what we're seeing both in the stock market, commercial real estate, other, other assets is elevated ratios in historical terms. Now, it's true that interest rates are low, and low interest rates are one reason to expect higher price earnings multiples. But perhaps they're still high, even given the level of interest rates. Um, so I don't want to opine and don't know what the right level is, but that is something that um, what ought to be on the list of risk to the economy. But um, the financial system seems to be sound. We're not seeing evidence of growing leverage um, core the core of the financial system, the systemically important banks are very well capitalized and are strong. Um, supervision has been strengthened measurably since the crisis. We're not seeing risks in maturity transformation that are evident. So I'd say overall assessment is the risks are moderate, but that's a risk that the Fed should keep its eyes on. Uh, I want to, uh, you've written a book called um, The Fabulous Decade with Alan Blinder, who was vice chair of the Federal Reserve. Uh, the Fabulous Decade was the 1990s. Um, uh, now, of course, it did end with the dot-com bubble. But one of the remarkable factors in that, which you discuss extensively here, 
was uh, the surge of productivity growth, particularly in the second half of of this decade. Now, we all admire uh, what has happened to unemployment and job growth since the Great Depression, since the bottom of the market in June of 2009. Uh, It's actually, I don't think anyone thought unemployment rate would go down as fast as it did. But, of course, what has been so extremely disappointing in this recovery has been the productivity growth. Yes. Um, and we economists seem to have, be having a very hard time understanding why productivity has lagged so much in this recovery. Um, you know, given your study of it in, in this decade and your, your thoughts, now, again, it's, this is not a direct, certainly, responsibility of the Fed, but is a major reason why real wages have stagnated yes. as well as other. What are, what are your concepts or ideas or hypotheses for why productivity has lagged? So I certainly agree with you that productivity growth has been very much slower than for <clears throat> most of the post-war period and certainly than the second half of the 90s. Um, there are some reasons that may relate to the deep downturn that we just went through. And in particular, we've had very weak capital investment, which is not surprising in a sluggish economy with a lot of unused capacity. But capital accumulation has been very modest. Um, In addition, there were huge layoffs um, in the downturn, and that tended to be less skilled workers as they've been hired back um, during the um, recovery. That's also tended to impede productivity growth coming out of the downturn. But even abstracting from those kind of cyclical or crisis-related depressants of productivity, it seems that um, total factor productivity is has fallen below the levels that we're accustomed to. Why? It's very hard to tell. Um, some people believe that simply the pace of innovation, or at least the pace of innovations which show up as improvement in output, um, has simply diminished, that we have not seen innovations that have the kind of payoffs of those we had early in the 20th century, like electricity. Um, Another factor that may play a role is a decline in business dynamism. So some productivity growth, a significant piece according to much analysis, reflects um, a transfer of resources between firms that are successful and growing and those that are unsuccessful and shrink or disappear. So you have kind of a Schumpeterian process that takes place in the economy of creative destruction that tends to transfer resources from less successful to more successful firms. And that is part of what causes productivity growth And by many measures, that simply slowed down. The pace of business... Do we know why? I don't think we know why. The pace of business formation has slowed. Now, importantly, 
the slowdown in productivity looks to be something that had begun before the financial crisis. The other fact about it is it's not just confined to the U.S. It looks to be global. And that suggests something structural and not just crisis-related. People point to mismeasurement, and I think there is mismeasurement of prices that could mean that output growth is really properly measured, would be higher than we're measuring. But to explain a productivity slowdown, you would have to argue that mismeasurement has gotten much worse. And I've not seen anyone convincingly make that case. Robert Gordon of Northwestern University has written this very well-known book, The Rise and Fall of American Growth, and he talks... Uh, he, he could be described as a productivity pessimist going yes. forward. The other, Joel Moker, is actually in economics and history, also yep. at Northwestern, is right. much more of an optimist. Uh, ben Bernanke, a number of years ago, when he was giving one of his uh, graduation speeches, and he said he thought we could, would come out of this so-called funk of, of productivity. Are, are you a productivity optimist or pessimist? Have so you? I don't have a good reason to believe that the future will be different. Um, I admit that I don't really know why productivity's growth has slowed, but it's now been a substantial period Period of time, time, and I don't believe there is um, a sound reason to project that it will pick up. Of course, it could pick up, and we can hope it would pick up, but I don't see a sound reason to project that that would happen. So um, in the projections that I would write down, I would assume that, well, probably we would see somewhat better productivity growth than we saw for many years after the financial crisis, but that it would not pick up to the historical average of early, earlier. Right. Um, on, the productivity, on the productivity side, um, I'd like to read a... Um, uh, oh, I, I, I do want to mention, just maybe after my question here... Um, we do have microphones that if any of you can think of questions for Missy Ellen. Um, we will, we want to entertain your questions uh, also. Um, I want to read you something that I found very interesting in the book uh, over here. And um, it's called Lessons of, uh, of the 1990s. Um, and um, having briefly extolled, extolled certain rules we've learned. We hasten to add that the fabulous decade also seems to have resurrected an idea that most economists had thought had died in the 1970s. Our lesson four is it now appears that fine-tuning the economy um, is at least possible. If not, we would like to know what Alan Greenspan has been up to since 1992. (laughs) Uh, Indeed, we nominate Greenspan as the greatest fine-tuner in history. Once again, however, a caution is in order. To declare that something is possible is not to assert that it can be done equal, easily or regularly. Successful fine-tuning requires a blend of skill and luck, and that is rare, and Alan Greenspan has had both in abundance. <laughs> but then you said maybe his luck is running out. How do you how do you stand on that? You were chuckling as I read this. Um, what do you what do you what do you think? And uh, I mean, certainly 
he, he not foreseeing the financial crash or, or, or giving warnings to it certainly, you know, besmirched that notion that he had the all-seeing eye on, yeah. on the economy. How do you view back on that? Well, when I think about Greenspan's legacy, I do deserve, think he deserves credit as the greatest fine-tuner of all time. He, when he became chair, inflation was still at uncomfortable levels above 3%, and he gradually brought it, inflation down and stabilized it around 2% and built the Fed's credibility for um, maintaining inflation at a low and stable level. And he had tremendous insight into what was happening with productivity and deserves great credit for seeing that productivity was picking up in the second half of the 90s. And what that meant was, was that the economy, because of what was a profound supply shock, favorable supply shock, could enjoy um, extremely low unemployment coupled with low inflation. There were other supply shocks that were also at work, the dollar, oil prices, but productivity growth was the heart of it. And Greenspan saw that inflation was not in the process of picking up at a time when you would have thought with the unemployment rate falling as rapidly. But that's similar to your last few years as is, Fed chair. That is absolutely right. I mean, we're seeing the same thing, low inflation, no, no significant pickup in inflation with unemployment falling to very low levels. We do not have pro- productivity growth to thank, to thank for that. Yeah. But it was important there. But you mentioned the financial crisis. And, of course, his, shortly after his term ended, we did have the financial crisis. And looking back on it, I think, um, and Greenspan was not alone in this, so um, I don't mean to blame him and say that he alone deserves the blame, but let me just say he and we had too much faith in um, financial firms to manage their risks, in financial markets to appropriately price risks, in derivatives and the role that they would play. I think there was um, great confidence at the time that derivatives were um, serving to distribute risk to those who could best understand and bear the risk, and that financial firms um, understood the risk that they were taking and had appropriate incentives to manage them. And I think the financial crisis really showed that all of that confidence was misplaced. And supervision of the largest financial institutions was not what it should have been. Um, At least it was um, in the aftermath of the crisis, let's say, that we've worked very hard to strengthen supervision, uh, including using stress tests and forward-looking measures of um, capital adequacy that I think give us much better um, insight into the risks in the financial system. More broadly, a um, lesson for me is that the Fed, you know, it was started in 1913, and it was in the aftermath of a financial crisis. 
um, the 1907 financial panic. And there had been a run on several banks. And a bunch of private bankers at the time, led by J.P. Morgan, got together, saw that there could be a collapse of the banking system if they allowed panic to spread. And um, depositors were beginning to line up outside banks, scared that their banks were going to fail. And they made a decision to support a number of banks to stem the panic. But it didn't seem like that type of work should be something left to a group of public-spirited private citizens. So they, um, that was really the motivation for the founding of the Federal Reserve in 1913. And whenever there's been a financial panic, the Fed is always there to supply liquidity and serve as a lender of last resort. But the Federal Reserve, although it's always played a key role in every financial panic, has never really had a broad-based, until recently, a broad-based program to monitor the entire financial system for emerging threats. And um, many of the threats in our recent financial crisis came from outside the core banking system, from the so-called shadow banking system, from investment banks, money market firms, um, the securitization markets, um, the mortgage market. And um, there was no broad program of financial stability that um, was directed at identifying those threats so I think that was another failing, not only of the Fed, but of um, financial regulators as a whole. And there's um, been a great deal of work since the financial crisis to make sure that we are engaged in financial stability work. Let me have one more question, then I'm going to open up to the group. Um, the last three chairmen, Greenspan, Bernanke, and yourself, both have been economists, both had worked on at the CEA and I think been chair of the That's CEA yes. before actually taking um, the position. And uh, our current uh, chair, Jay Powell, has taken a very different route, um, certainly also in his background. Um, I'd like to ask you whether you think that is a source of concern at all and, and also whether the fact that... Um, um, uh, when we, Stan Fisher, who unfortunately for personal reasons had to resign last, last October, you know, had the background. Actually, Stan was one year ahead of me at MIT and, um, you know, certainly one of the outstanding students. Uh, that, that position is still open. And do you think because of Jay Powell's um, background, it might be more important in the vice chair position to have someone that has more of what we call a, a, a classical economics background. So economics is certainly an important part of monetary policy, um, and economics expertise and forecasts and understanding of the risks is a key part of what everyone in the FOMC um, has to assess. But... I would say that it is not essential to be a PhD economist to be able to make those kinds of evaluations. And 
Um, my successor is somebody who has studied economics, and I have been very impressed with um, the depth of his understanding and his willingness. We've interacted for five years. Um, he's uh, been on the board. We've worked together, and I have seen him dig in um, intensely to read and master and understand the economics and the forecast and the issues. And he has worked in financial markets and understanding the financial system is also an important piece of it. And so um, I do think he has the skills and background. I expect him to do an excellent job as chair and I have a lot of confidence in him. Um, but um, especially the so-called troika, you have the vice chair of the board, the vice chair of the FOMC is the president of the New York Fed. That team works together closely. And that's an in, open position. That, is, that will also become open. Um, Bill Dudley, who's president in New York, will be um, stepping down right. uh, later this spring. Um, that group really needs to work together closely, and I do think it would be highly desirable um, to have someone with a very strong economics background is part of that team, um, one, one or both of those positions. But, of course, economics is important, but um, you know, I think one does not have to be a Ph.D. economist to understand the economics and apply it. Well, thank you very much. Um, very good. We would like to have, we have students standing in there. So um, how about standing in the left and then go right, left, right, please. Yeah. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Yes, yes we can. My name is Brian Mena. I'm a senior and warden from California. Um, my question is actually regarding the growth um, restrictions you impose on Wells Fargo. Um, do you think that future Fed chairs will further extend power and perform similar actions? And also, can you provide an update on the Wells Fargo submitted plan to improve board oversight and management practices? So the Federal Reserve um, supervises bank holding companies and has to make sure that they have in place a comprehensive set of risk management controls. Um, and that's a key part of our oversight, and it's a key responsibility of the board of directors of any financial institution. And um, we put in place um, various restrictions and sanctions that are designed to ensure um, that those controls are put in place um, when there have been significant failings. The Federal Reserve often signs, uh, enforce, imposes enforcement actions on banks. Um, Wells Fargo agreed to such an enforcement action. And although the cap on its asset growth is something that's unusual, it was something that was deemed appropriate given Wells Fargo's size and the significance of the shortcomings in controls in that organization, especially when there's growth, um, it's important that 
the controls in an organization be shown to be operative and effective. So although that was a, a novel sanction, it's part of the scope of the tools available to the Federal Reserve to um, ensure appropriate risk management. And, um, you know, depending on what would happen in other organizations in the future, um, there are a range of actions that are available, and that type of thing could be employed again. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, on the right, please. Hi, Rob. Hi, Dr. Yellen. Uh, my name is Robert Epstein, and I'm a freshman here at Penn, and also I'm an officer on the Warden FinTech Group. Uh, so my question has to do with crypto assets. Um, so obviously, a lot of people here think that, you know, 50, 100 years from now, uh, money as we know today will not exist. Um, does the Federal Reserve plan in the near future to, um, you know, take a lead on this and create sort of an American... Um, cryptocurrency, or are there no plans in place? So the Fed has looked at, when you say create a cryptocurrency, it is possible for a central bank to create its own um, digital digital currency. And um, the Fed has looked at that possibility. Many central banks around the world are studying that possibility uh, I think the Bank of Sweden has gone further than any other central bank I'm aware of in showing an interest in possibly adopting it. Um, I think the general view in the Central Banking Committee is that um, this, is, this is something we should be very cautious about. It could lead to very far-reaching changes in the structure of financial um, intermediation in the United States and other countries with a variety of consequences that might not be um, favorable ones. And it's not obvious that it would do anything at all to enhance monetary policy control. Um, it's not necessary in any way for monetary policy control. Um, we've long thought that the use of cash would diminish over time. That's actually not been um, shown to be the case. Um, U.S. dollar currency is alive and well, and demand for it has been growing at a rapid rate. So um, I'm not aware of any um, enthusiasm at this point on the part of most advanced country central banks to introduce their own digital currency at the retail level. Of course, there is um, an important part of the reserve base the, uh, of the Federal Reserve is digital in the sense of um, banks, banks have accounts with the Fed, and that is not physical currency, and so that is a kind of digital um, wholesale currency, but at the retail level, um, I'm not aware of any such plans. Thank you. On the left. Sure. Hello. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Yellen and Professor Siegel, for coming in. It's uh, definitely an honor. My name is Harrison Beard. I'm a junior studying mathematical economics and statistics. And I just had a question um, regarding something earlier you said that the economy is doing very well. Um, there's sort of a lot of indices and looking at unemployment and looking at inflation. It's in a very favorable condition. Um, 
But, however, there's also a lot of press recently about how the economy may uh, not be in a favorable position. Namely, um, there's a few indicators, for instance, like the Case-Shiller Index is at um, a very high level. Um, notwithstanding the flash crash at the end of January, volatility is very low, which is a potential concern. And, um, you know, we're approaching the end of the credit cycle, as people are saying. And as we talked about earlier, price, earning mul price earnings multiples are, are pretty high as well. Um, and one particular thing that I want to ask you is that um, the, the Fed, and the Fed is wanting to uh, taper the balance sheet of a lot of our um, long-term uh, treasury bonds as well as mortgage-backed securities. And a lot of people are saying that this could potentially cause a market crash because, um, at least what I've read, every time the Fed has tapered the balance sheet in the past, it's led to a recession. So I want to hear what your insight or what your view on that would be. Do you think the tapering of the balance sheet in the coming years is likely to lead to a recession? So the Fed long ago announced that it would, after normalization of the level of short-term interest rates was well underway, it would begin a gradual and predictable process of slowly um, whittling down its balance sheet toward more normal levels. And then over time, we announced further details about how we would do that. And finally, um, last fall, we actually set the process in motion. And by the time it began, it was very well understood. Um, there are no asset sales involved. Um, what the Fed is doing is, rather than when it receives principal payments on uh, treasury securities or mortgage-backed securities, it had been fully reinvesting those proceeds to keep its holdings constant. It announced that subject to some caps, it would begin to redeem some of the principal, and uh, the caps have been ramping up at a very gradual pace. So the market is fully informed about how this will go, um, I don't believe that my colleagues will be reconsidering how this will work anytime soon. The idea is that once this process was triggered, it would be put on autopilot. In fact, the FOMC statement uh, in January said absolutely nothing about the balance sheet because this process is underway. It is not something that my colleagues plan to adjust, to consider at every meeting, to vary over time. That type of thing could give rise to volatility. So this is well understood by the markets. The Treasury piece of it is 100% predictable. Mortgage-backed security redemptions um, depend a bit on market conditions but we've seen no market reaction to it. Now, we do think that purchasing those assets puts some downward pressure on long-term interest rates. So you would expect that gradually over time, as the balance sheet shrinks, there would be some upward pressure on term premia. But the process by which that will occur will be very gradual and over many years, and the other aspect of it is that the shrinkage of the Fed's balance sheet is likely to be substantially less 
than the initial purchase of assets. So before the crisis, the Fed's balance sheet asset holdings were about a trillion dollars, and that ramped up to four and a half trillion dollars. Um, but in the meantime, the demand for currency has grown substantially, and for a variety of reasons, while the Fed hasn't decided on its ultimate operating framework, um, you know, likely the shrinkage would could take it somewhere in the two to three billion dollar trillion dollar range, and not back to pre-crisis levels. Thank you. Uh, on the right here, please. Hey, Dr. Yellen, thanks for coming. Thank you. Uh, so over the last 12 years or so, through your term and through Bernanke's term as Fed chair, uh, there have been a lot of changes made at the Fed, one of those being the degree of involvement that the Fed has in fiscal policy. Uh, so my question is, first of all, uh, have, you, have you seen any other changes at the Fed during your tenure that you are particularly proud of and would like to highlight? And secondly, how do you expect the Fed will respond to new fiscal policies such as uh, increased trade tariffs on industrial goods? And what can the Fed do to mitigate the risk and consequences of a potential trade war? So there are a lot of pieces to that question. Let me start with the fiscal policy piece. You said that the Fed's role in fiscal policy had changed, and I'm not sure I agree with that. Um, I'm not positive what you meant by that, but um, the Fed generally stays out of fiscal policy. Fiscal policy is the responsibility of Congress and the administration, and I've myself and um, my predecessor, we've tried to stay away from giving detailed advice on how to conduct fiscal policy. Maybe a few... The, uh, the response that the Fed has had to, to fiscal policy, for instance, like with, with trade tariffs, uh, can lead to higher inflation, and obviously the Fed has to react to... Well, so with, with trade policy. Um, so with trade policy... Um, it's one of many influences affecting the economy. There's a lot of discussion now about how the administration's trade policy could affect the economy. Um, I think generally the tariffs that have been recently announced would have a tiny impact of the type you're suggesting on inflation. They would push up the prices of steel and aluminum and products um, that use them. But overall, um, when you work the numbers, it's relatively little. So the impact on of what's been announced on the macro outlook is not very large. I think the larger concern is, um, will there be more? Could there be retaliation? Could we see a more serious breakdown in trade relations between the United States and the rest of the world that would begin to have um, repercussions for the economic outlook. But I wouldn't see significant repercussions from what we have seen to date. I'd like to follow up on that. I remember four years ago when you were uh, selected as chair, New York Times ran an article, and 
you mentioned in a lo long article about you and your background, you mentioned that your husband uh, and you agree on <laughs> virtually everything, although, and this surprised me, I'm a little bit more free trade than he is. Um, and I, 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 it, it, first of all, it surprised me, but I'm, I'm just wondering, are you alarmed uh, at, what, at what you see? Um, is your husband thinking maybe we can negotiate with China and uh, get somewhere on this? Uh, what do you think? I think my husband meant that as something of a joke, but, um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but to the extent that there's truth in it and he said it, I, I'd say, you know, all of us who've stud studied trade uh, agree that um, removing trade barriers is generally beneficial for the country as a whole. Nevertheless, there can be losers from trade. And... Um, the country is better off to the extent that the gainers compensate the losers. When that doesn't happen, the distributional impacts of trade can be deleterious. And, you know, we've seen rise in inequality in this country. I certainly by no means attribute all of it or even most of it to trade. I actually think technological change has probably been a more important influence. But I think we should be concerned by rising inequality and the fact that uh, at the middle and below in the income distribution, we've seen stagnation of real wages and real incomes over many decades now. And to the extent that trades played a role, um, I think that's something we should worry about. That still leaves me as um, something I'm willing to call myself generally a free trader um, in general when I think about the impacts of tariffs. And we can see that in the discussion now. Um, it's often the case that you're rating um, a small group, um, even a small group of workers, possibly um, producing greater harm to other workers and to the economy as a whole. And so I continue to feel that way, but I do think he's right that the distributional consequences sometimes can be worrisome. I, I see a light. Could we have one more question? Do we have time? I'm just asking. I guess I decide. Well, then we, <laughs> it was flashing a zero here, and I, but let's, let's right. take your question. Yes. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, in your view, has the Fed succeeded in achieving its symmetric 2% inflation target at any point since it was introduced? Or does that target imply that PCE inflation should be around 2% on average over some sustained period? Um, so I think if you go back to 1994 and look at, um, that's the first time I was involved in policy at the Fed and this computation I've occasionally made, um, the average inflation rate is awfully close to 2% since that time. Sorry, I meant uh, since it was officially introduced. Oh, oh sorry. Oh, okay, so we officially introduced the 2% objective, I guess, in 2012. And inflation has been below that more or less consistently since then. And um, it, the objective is one that the Fed is always trying to achieve over the medium term. And so it is a concern 
that after so many years, inflation continues to linger below 2%. And that's why I say the Fed is very focused on wanting to get back to 2%, and it is a symmetric objective. I think there are too many people who may think that 2% is a ceiling, and the Fed is happy if the inflation rate just is somewhere below 2% and wouldn't want to ever see it go above 2%. The objective is always to be heading and to get to 2%, and sometimes it's below and sometimes it will be above. The Fed added language to its statement of longer-term goals that enunciates that objective to say it's symmetric, and the Fed would be equally concerned with inflation being below the objective as above the objective. So, I mean, we could talk, and I, I won't now, about why over all those years, what explains why inflation has been below 2%, but I believe my colleagues regard it as um, important that it return to 2%. But when you say you use the words 2% on average. And I would say I do want to make a distinction here. The goal is not really 2% on average um, because the words 2% on average suggests that if there were to be a period of, let's say, overshooting, say that suppose there were five years in which the inflation rate were running at 2.5%. To achieve 2% on average, you might say there then needs to be another period of five years in which inflation runs at 1.5% to counter that and keep the average at 2. That, that, if, that is not what the Fed's objective is to achieve 2% on average. That regime is known as price level targeting, and it's another way in which the Fed could work. That's not what it's adopted. There's quite a dis bit of discussion taking place now as to whether or not price level targeting would be a desirable different regime, but I just want to emphasize that is not the regime the Fed is operating under. It's operating under a regime of wanting to always achieve 2%, but not to compensate in the future for past um, deviations, either above or below. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I thought I'd just end with, you're now you know, at the Brookings um, Research Organization. Um, you mentioned potentially research. Um, uh, you mentioned to me maybe a book. Um, Possibly. And, 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 of course, speaking, helping explain the positions of, of the Fed. Are, are these, these are great things to look forward to. How Thank do you, you feel? Well, I'm excited about it, and um, I really enjoy and having she's the beginning, opportunity. She's beginning to, this process here. I, so this is like the trial run for you. <laughs> well, thanks. I appreciate it. It was really great to have a chance to take a dry run at doing that. And, you know, I think try, for people to try to understand the economy, the Fed, monetary policy, it's um, appreciate your interest in it, and it's something that I'll try to promote going forward. Thank you. Thank you, Mrs. Yellen. Thank, Thank you. you Thank you. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.